0: This week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network.
1: In this episode of This Week in FCPA, Jay and I are looking at some of the following stories. Mike Volkoff's Takes the Chickens Out to Roost in a three-part blog post series on the Department of Justice antitrust action, price fixing and big rigging on chicken producers. How will working from home change business? Allison Taylor explores. What are the three R's of a speak up culture? Lloydette by Marrow explores on the FCPA blog. Jim Nortz reminds us it's your culture, stupid. Matt Kelly explores how COVID 19 is changing internal audit. Vive la France! Dylan Tokar reports on France's increasing ABC enforcement. In the Wall Street Journal, Risk and Compliance Journal, how to make sure compliance is not marginalized during a financial dislocation. We take a look at a plethora of authors on New York University's Compliance and Enforcement blog. And finally, what are the ethical upsides to working from home? We take a look at that issue. All this, podcasts, and much more on This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, here again with Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen, for This Week in FCPA, episode 210. Didn't we just have 200? Hmm. Anyway, for the week ending June 19th, 2020, the Bostock edition. As Donald Trump has trouble drinking a glass of water and walking, that's separately, not at the same time. COVID-19 cases spike across the U.S. and the U.S. Supreme Court hands down a landmark decision on protections for the LGBTQ community in the workplace. Self-distancing myself and Mr. Monitors are back to consider some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories. What say ye...
0: I say that the Supreme Court doesn't like DJT, and he's going to take his toys and go play somewhere else. Could well happen. Could well happen. You can hear him. I don't know any of these justices. I just hear that they're really bad, and we got to get rid of them.
1: Yeah, let's just get rid of them. So uh, so anyway, uh, Jay, we had uh, some stories about chickens, and we rarely talk about chickens in – this Week in FCPA or on This Week in FCPA, but today we have a plethora of stories around chickens, price-fixing, and and I trust uh, and, uh, I really had no idea this went on in the chicken industry, but Mike Volkov had a really interesting three-part uh, blog post series. Jonathan Rauch also weighed in on the great dipping through geometries. Mike took a look at, on part one, Kind of the, the big picture allegations. What really happens in an, in an antitrust investigation? Uh, and there, uh, they've got the, the long held policy leniency policy where the first company to disclose and cooperate with the, about the existence of the conspiracy is given a full pass along with executives, employees that cooperate. So, uh, that's been around, but now we have, of course, the, uh, it, antitrust divisions, evaluation of corporate compliance programs, which can lead to a reduction in the uh, antitrust penalty. So that was sort of in part one. Part two, he took a deep dive into the allegations. And I must say, um, not only were the, uh, when I say allegations, I mean the facts supporting the allegations, not only were they just damning, um, it's it's the age-old maxim, don't put illegal activities in emails, stupid. Uh, because they put lots of illegal actions in emails stupid. Um, so maybe a little email uh, refresher training might be a good thing for uh, of some of us in the compliance community to uh, put out, like, don't put illegal activities in emails stupid. Uh, and then in part three, he had uh, lessons learned. And I think um, Really, this one was uh, the probably the most helpful for the compliance practitioner, Jay, both in terms of antitrust compliance, but also anti-corruption compliance, because some of the uh, over- overarching and overall themes that led to the allegations, which formed the basis of the criminal complaint, included executive-level participation in the alleged schemes and uh, And that led to something that we, I don't think, talk about uh, really not at all, Jay, which is a C-suite risk assessment. Obviously, we both talk about risk assessments, uh, both up and uh, throughout the organization, a new one when you have new facts. But rarely do you talk about a C-suite risk assessment. So that might be something compliance practitioners need to be cognizant of. These companies did not have empowered or independent chief compliance officers because they were overridden by the actions in the C-suite. Email and communications monitoring and audit, uh, this stuff is in writing. It's available for you to look at. You can uh, search through your own email base basis in the United States. That's not illegal. Um, It's routinely done. And uh, given the stupidity of the participants in putting the illegal actions in emails, and really in plain language, I think this is something that uh, compliance practitioners need to consider. Another point, Jay, or a couple of points we don't really focus enough in on anti-corruption, anti-bribery compliance are pricing and bid review controls, because here the bid rigging... And the price fixing uh, was around bids for the sale of chicken. And you could see in the email traffic that Mike detailed in part two how the scheme came to into place and then how the actors cooperated with each other. And when you know each other's bid price, uh, that's certainly something uh, that uh, a compliance officer can look at. And then uh, who's going to review The overall bids uh, around discounts. Uh, Next is an area that is uh, certainly uh, uh, primarily focused on antitrust, which is market concentration. And the higher the concentration of market, the lower number of competitors, the easier it is to implement uh, price fixing and big rigging agreements. That, of course, increases um, the risk. And then he concludes with training, training, and more training. So some really great uh, lessons learned for the compliance practitioner. And uh, as uh, your colleagues, Dion Lomax and Jesse Kaplan, who were part of uh, the panelists on the affiliated monitors and I Trust Compliance webinar yesterday, talked about you really need to uh, integrate your antitrust compliance with your anti-bribery and <clears throat> anti-corruption compliance. So uh, take a look at this, uh, and I hope that that AMI webinar is available for download, but we've also reposted that, Jay, as uh, under the AMI Expert podcast series. So if you're uh, interested in antitrust compliance and its intersection with uh, ABC compliance, uh, take a look at or take a listen to that available
0: on the Compliance Podcast Network. Great. So on next up, we have something coming to us from our friend Allison Taylor, and she's writing on the World Economic Forum blog. And Allison's taking a look at how working from home will change business. COVID nineteen has ushered in the age of the intangible company, and here are four ways it will change business. This pandemic has effectively kicked off a new era in our working lives. Instead of assembling in offices, more fortunate members of the workforce gather virtually via teleconferencing software. Our days, seemingly shortened by the freedom from commuting to and going to the office, now include juggling personal obligations and catching up on workloads as we can. That means that corporate culture is certain to become less tangible in this new remote workplace. The once-reliable division between internal and external factors has blurred across a range of dimensions, leaving a tighter, less predictable feedback loop between a company's actions, impacts, and reputations. In February, The Economist reported that 61% of the market value of an S&P 500 company sits in intangibles, such as research and development, customers linked by network efforts, brands, and data. To put this another way, financial and strategic success increasingly depends on addressing environmental and social risks and opportunities, what used to be called externalities. Organizational leadership will become markedly more a matter of influencing diverse networks than of exerting control over human and financial resources. Here are four changes in how our business life will transform moving forward. First, physical distance takes up corporate culture. Long before the pandemic, the 2020s were tagged as the remote work decade. Remote work also bids to play a positive role when the impact of the Earth's climate crisis of transport systems, infrastructure, and human health rush to the fore in the pandemic's wake. An important long-term imperative is that well-executed remote work provisions offer opportunities to build a more inclusive workforce, one whose members have enhanced control over scheduling and the opportunity to handle commitments of family life. Next up, radical transparency is here. Hierarchy has historically regulated people's access to critical information, as well as the power to act upon it. Only senior executives have previously been privy to all this information. With legacy media institutions fragmented and polarized and accelerating accelerating social media adoption, Companies are adapting to an information environment that is continually being transformed. These trends have been super sarge, supercharged by a surge in employee activism. Workers are directly challenging business leaders to reconsider their company's commercial relationships and authority structures. Three, a reckoning for rights for workers' rights. Leaders' waning ability to control the narrative is only one example of dramatic shifts underway, and how status and power are deployed inside organizations. Both millennial and Gen Z employees are far more inclined to challenge the authority once conferred by age and experience. In many companies, an even more striking fault line persists between full-time employees who are granted sick leave, vacation, and pensions, and those contract workers who have few or no such privileges. Much of the growth of the gig economy was long viewed in terms of the benefit it provided workers, flexibility, ownership, freedom, the joys of a portfolio career. Yet these arguments look increasingly untenable during a public health crisis. And finally, a new strategic imperative. A decisive rhetorical shift to stakeholder capitalism came less than a year ago, with skeptics duly noting that the Business Roundtable's 2019 commitment – to serving the needs of all stakeholders lack practical substance. Whether the pandemic ultimately elevates or undermines responsible business practices over the long run remains impossible to say. What does look certain is there's time is running out in self-serving, selective presentations regarding performance and corporate responsibilities. Some economically beleaguered corporations and investors seem to believe that they face a choice between maintaining Voluntary ethics, social, and corporate governance spending or ensuring long-term competitiveness. But our inspecting, intersecting crises in public health, climate, and inequality are exposing the limitations that bedevil calculations of a direct organizational self-interest. It is vital consider, to consider broader environmental and social system. And as today's companies become more physically diffuse, work is less time-bound, information is less constrained, and status and power are more contested, and cooperation is ever more important. So interesting thoughts from Allison, and we share them on the um, show notes. Next up, Tom, can you tell us about the three R's of speak-up culture?
1: Yeah, Jay, this comes to a second-time uh, uh... Participant in our weekly wrap up, Lloydette By Mero. She is a founding partner and principal consultant at Parametric Global Consulting in the United Kingdom. She's a former investigative lawyer for the SFO and uh, senior crown prosecutor. Uh, And she um, listed what she calls the three R's of a speak up culture and. What I liked about this, Jay, is it's a very quick, short, even pithy reminder about what leaders can do uh, when uh, people speak up. And this really is something I think should should go to not only every senior leader but also every leader in middle management. And it's pretty straightforward: react, respond, remediate. React when employees uh, ask. Uh, If you don't react, employees will escalate their concerns outside the organization. Here in the United States, obviously, that means going to the uh, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Reaction is not a full investigation, but it does mean contacting a person who's uh, reported, triaging it, testing its seriousness, and then moving forward from there, responding. Um, You need to... uh, respond in some way but more importantly in a meaningful way an effective response is one that distills the relevant factors in a constructive and timely manner and then sets out a clear path of action that's obviously based upon your triage and investigation and three remediate every crisis is made worse by a head in the sand uh, ostrich whatever you want to call it conscious indifference uh, conscious avoidance terms we see from the FCPA, but follow through on your plan what to do what's necessary and document that. That was a key component of the 2020 update to the evaluation of corporate compliance programs. And as Lloydette ends with quote, that is ethical leadership in action, end quote. So I thought it was a good, short, uh, like I said, even almost pithy read about three ways to think about or, or ways to think about the three things literally every leader in a corporation can do from, uh, you know, the boardroom all the way to, to middle management and down below, Jay.
0: Good stuff, Tom. Next, uh, this article comes to us from Dave Betty from the Wall Street Journal, uh, not risk and compliance, but pro-cyber news, and the headline is GOP stymies data privacy data protection legislation yet again. As authorities and companies explore surveillance tools to fight the coronavirus and reopen the U.S. economy, many federal lawmakers agree that privacy protections are key, but proposals for safeguards unveiled in recent weeks have crashed into two familiar roadblocks in the U.S. Senate. Many Republicans want federal law to override state-level rules for privacy, while Democrats have argued stronger state statutes should hold sway and want individuals to be able to sue companies for privacy violations. Momentum for a general federal privacy standard picked up at the last year when Republicans and Democrats discussed respective proposals in the Senate Commerce Committee. But unresolved differences reappeared last month in dueling bills tailored for data collection around the coronavirus pandemic, leaving some policy analysts doubtful that the bill will move forward. With progress on pandemic privacy bills unclear before Congress's August recess and the November election, advocates and industry groups say U.S. consumers will face a ramp up of data collection uh, by business and authorities without a roadmap from Washington. State and local officials have also begun considering mobile phone apps to help track the spread of the virus, many of them supported by infrastructure created by Apple and Alphabet's Google. The lack of a legal standard has allowed the tech giants to self-regulate the effort so far with mixed results. Researchers at the Brookings Institute, a Washington think tank, this month proposed compromises that include sunsetting federal preemption of state law and minimizing damages a company might face in a lawsuit from the consumer. Elected officials, however, haven't moved much toward a middle ground, according to congressional aides. A separate privacy proposal unveiled in the Senate this month did receive bipartisan support, though the scope is narrow. A national standard for such apps could hamstring local officials leading the public health response to the coronavirus pandemic and limit adoption of the tools by communities that prefer safeguards tailored by state lawmakers. It's a really politically challenging position to consider introducing a new set federal compliance regime in the midst of a crisis where employees are trying to come back to work and deal with other existing federal laws. The legal vacuum is also making it more difficult for application developers to build tools to track user sy- symptoms and locations that could help the economy reopen. So this is seems to be somewhat problematic, and it kind of dovetails with the issue about uh, both federal and state authorities punting back and forth the responsibility for testing. So we can't even get the testing straight. How are we going to get take the next step to contact tracking?
1: So, Jay, next up we have an article by uh Jim Nortz. Jim was a longtime columnist in the ABA magazine on an ethics columns column for lawyers. Uh he retired from that column and now he contributes to Corporate Compliance Insights, where we find this article. And um this will probably be a smile to your face uh because the title is It's Your Culture, Stupid. Um you don't control compliance, your way to compliance. You have an appropriately ethical culture. And uh, parenthetically, that's the uh, uh, subject of my blog tomorrow where I detail Winnie the Pooh as CECO and an ethical culture. But Jim just he's very detailed. Uh, he's got some great uh, statistics, some interesting charts But it goes back to that basic line. It's your culture, stupid. And if your senior management is not committed to uh, an ethical culture, you won't have one. And he demonstrates why management must do so. And he came out of the... pharmaceutical industry. So he he uh, taps the names of several com- companies that are going to be uh, familiar to both those in the FCPA world and our listening audience, Pfizer, Merrick, Johnson & Johnson, Novartis, and what he calls dozens of other marquee companies who were caught by bear traps. And when he says bear traps, he means um Ethical violations, which raised were raised to the level of FCPA or other legal violations. He said all of these companies have volumes of policies and procedures and codes of conduct, and that um, you might have even been awestruck by the quality of their compliance training, led by a vast number of highly credentialed, dedicated compliance and ethics professionals. But if you don't have that commitment, if you don't have the ethical tone at the top. Uh, and if you don't have it in culture, uh, then you're always going to fail. And uh, that's a great message. Uh, certainly something that uh, every corporation needs to not only hear, but reinforce and uh, take to heart. So it's your culture, stupid. Uh, all the policies and procedures in the world are not going to uh, uh, keep you from a violation if your culture is corrupt, Jay.
0: Good stuff. Uh, Next up, we're going to turn to the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, in his Radical Compliance blog. And Matt takes a look at how COVID is changing internal audit. The internal audit world is bracing for big change thanks to COVID-19. Tighter budgets, more risk assessments, changes to the audit plan, and like so many others these days, lots of folks working from home. So says a special report published by the Institute of Internal Auditors, the IIA, on Monday, based on a survey of nearly 500 audit executives in early June. The report is posted in the IIA's Audit Executive Center, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Let's start with the budget cuts. 45% of the surveyed respondents said they expect cuts to the internal audit budget over the next year compared to only 9% who were expecting cuts a year ago. That sounds gloomy, but many, much of those cuts seem to be targeted at business travel. 65% of the respondents said they expect significant cuts to that line, compared to only 6% who expected significant cuts to staffing. One interesting item, 16% of the respondents expect significant cuts to external sourcing, but 17% expect to increase spending on external sourcing. So are some companies cutting outside spend to save money for their internal staff? More risk assessment and more audit updates. Survey respondents also said that they will conduct risk assessments and update their audit plans more often. This should surprise nobody given how COVID-19 has put the standard risk scenarios through the blender. Fraud risks, cybersecurity risk, user access controls, management review, and sign-off of reconciliations of controls. They've all gone haywire. Changes to audit processes and competencies. Uh, in figure four of the report that he quotes, it shows the changes to audit processes that chief audit executives expect to make. Some are no surprise, such as lots of working for home and more flexible audit points. But Matt's more interested in the items further down the chart more use of data analytics, more consulting activities, more focus on cost savings. And any audit team can take those steps right now because the steps don't necessarily involve much or any new spending. On the other hand, more innovative steps like using audit software, automated controls, or robotic process automation, those things will require investment. And at last, he takes a snapshot of the audit competencies that are likely to be in more demand communication, cybersecurity, innovation, health and safety, data analytics, fraud. For each discipline, a majority of survey respondents said there'll be more of that expertise in the year to come. Again, no surprise if COVID-19 is putting tremendous strain on operations and audit teams will need to help operating units understand the new risks and internal controls to keep the risks at acceptable levels. The complete IAA report has a lot more data, including industry-by-industry debt industry breakdowns. And if you're looking for benchmarking information to help you understand what's normal for your fields, it's worth a read.
1: Jay, uh, vive la France, as Dylan Tokar, uh, our good friend over at the Wall Street Journal Risk and Compliance Journal, reports that prosecutions of fringe companies Uh, for the U.S. business practice has long been a sore spot in France, but now France's top law enforcement official has released guidance suggesting it could adopt the... U.S. approach to corporate corruption and bribery. Um, the French Just Ministry of Justice this month sent a memo to prosecutors outlining plans to investigate and prosecute illegal bribes by French companies to secure business in foreign countries. Uh, this uh, comes on the obviously on the heels of not only Sopondu, which uh, became law in 2017, but also the Airbus settlement, which really put France on the international anti-corruption map. So the uh, Basically, settlement agreements, uh, what we would call a uh, deferred prosecution agreement, and in France is uh, La Convention Judiciaire internet Interest Public CJIP, allows companies to pay fines and resolve allegations without admitting liability. The memo lays out factors prosecutors should consider in whether to offer a company a CJIP, and uh, those include self-disclosures, cooperation, and remediation. So, um, uh, really interesting to see France adopt uh, much of the U.S. model with the coming out party by French prosecutors in the uh, Airbus case. I think We're going to see more prosecutions out of France. So, uh, Jay, we had a really interesting, I thought, very comprehensive article from the NYU uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog from a plethora of contributing authors on how to make sure compliance was not is not mar- marginalized during a financial dislocation. What were some of the highlights for you?
0: So, as you said, Tom, this is pretty cool. In May, a webinar was sponsored by the New York City Bar Association. And the goal was not just to kick around some ideas, but rather to give more than 150 attendees 10 concrete takeaways, issues that they thought would be the most salient on which to focus limited resources. And the following are 10 takeaways and a brief summary of each. Number one, communication. A lack of communication or clarity from leadership during times of crisis may be wrongly interpreted as do what you need to do for that reason, compliance is all the more important right now. Number two, there's a need for renewed risk assessments. The risk profile of all organizations has changed, so companies need to conduct renewed risk assessments to evaluate the effectiveness of their compliance program in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Number three, need for evolving policies and procedures. In the same vein, And with the benefit of renewed risk assessments, companies will need some amendment of their policies and procedures to accommodate COVID-19 concerns. For example, it will likely be impractical to conduct trainings with the same frequency, but additional communications as suggested above will partially fill the void. Unfreeze the middle. It's important as tone at the top, employees should, of course, receive compliance messaging from other sources in different ways. Whether companies choose a formal liaison ambassador program or not, employees often feel comfortable turning to peers for initial direction and consultation. Compliance and senior management should encourage and facilitate this kind of communication. Number five is the need for innovation during the new normal. While ensuring that the business functions don't lose their focus on compliance and ethical decision making, compliance personnel should also focus on the need to innovate. Operationalization of virtual controls. Similarly, running a compliance program virtually requires control systems to adapt. The compliance function should facilitate this process. Number seven, addressing uncertainty, anxiety, and stress. Organizations should affirmatively address uncertainty, anxiety, and stress in the workforce to reduce the likelihood of a me, me, me mentality which increases the chances of misconduct and lack of engagement. Number eight, don't throw away the playbook. Regulators, enforcers, and prosecutors have been very understanding in their public statements since the pandemic began, and they should be taken of their word. And yet, as one of our panelists noted, as understanding as she might be as someone who lived through the crisis, a future regulator may not have the same understanding. That is particularly true if the company does not adhere to its existing policies and procedures. Number nine, focusing on cyber, cyber, COVID, and compliance. Compliance with regulations governing cybersecurity has always been crucial, but never more than in this work-at-home era. And finally, crisis leadership by compliance function. Former Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel is noted to have famously said he never wants to have a crisis go by and never want a serious crisis to go to waste. By any measure, this is a serious crisis. And our panel noted for many companies, this could be a way for the compliance function to lead in ways beyond the traditional administration of programs. Examples suggested were business continuity planning, reentry into the workplace, data privacy, health and safety, and as noted, cybersecurity. Integration of compliance with business is always a good thing, and this current pandemic paints an opportunity for deeper integration. So great information from a crew of thought leaders, and again, we link to that in the uh, show notes. Tom, next up we have uh, another ethical upside to working from home. What is that about?
1: Yeah, Jade, this comes to us from the Notre Dame Deloitte Center of Ethical Leadership and I found it really interesting because it focused a little bit different than some of the things we've talked about working from home. It starts off by uh, reminding us and I, I think this is a fair statement that people view in the past viewed their home life different from their work life. Now, I recognize that Mr. Monitors is pretty much on call 24/7 as is uh of the Compliance Podcast Network. So that may have been blurred for us, but uh, many people who worked in an office really felt that dichotomy. And now that is not, no longer exists. So that's led to something that the researchers call identity integration, where um, people do have multiple identities, but now they're being integrated into one. And what I found equally interesting uh, in addition to that discussion was ways for leaders to who are concerned about loss of normal strategies for connection, engagement, and accountability, which are really tied to the physical office, have an opportunity for encouraging employees to bring their entire selves to work, both their work self and their home self. And they gave three points, which I think really help uh, every leader create and sustain a more ethical culture. Number one, make authenticity a strategic priority. As employees are motivated, engaged, and keeping them that way, recognize authenticity can help uh, reach these goals. Uh, Feeling truly seen and heard can help employees feel less isolated and, indeed, more resilient. Uh, Two, create space. Um, Once again, people crave authenticity, and leaders don't want to force uh, people into that. They would need to come to that themselves. And so simply issuing invitations and leading by examples can be ways that uh, leaders not only uh, model behavior, but do so in a way that creates space for people to find their authentic selves. And then three... Make authenticity a part of your ethical culture. The point is not to be authentic in one moment, but to create an organizational and ethical culture that welcomes authenticity. Uh, recognize this is going to be an ongoing effort. And, and Jay, I think if we sat down with Eric or, or Van to your, uh, AMI co- colleagues, they would say uh, the exactly the same thing about an ethical culture. It's an ongoing effort. It's continually monitoring and it's continuous improvement. So, um, uh consistency in word and action is absolutely important in authenticity, and I think that can really help drive a more uh, ethical culture as well. So um, whether or not this was focusing on things that we've talked about using different language or it was really a different way to think about it, I thought it was very interesting uh using the word authenticity and something that leaders really may want to think about, uh, particularly in the work from home era.
0: Yeah, so Tom, this is the uh, part of the podcast when we look at some of the new offerings on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, First of all, I can't believe we're already at week three with Ryan Rabelais. Uh, What did you two address in this week's podcast?
1: So Ryan talked about some of the key skills that he sees as necessary for the CCO. A very interesting review from Ryan. It's
0: been a fascinating series so far, and uh, I know you'll enjoy this episode. All right. And next up, continuing on compliance and the coronavirus, this week you had three new guests. Which aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic did you look at?
1: So Tuesday, Scott Price talked about cybersecurity risk going forward. Wednesday, I had Gabe Gums talk about from Spirion. Uh, Scott's with A-Line. Uh, Gabe is with Spirion uh, on data privacy, and data protection during the economic dislocation. And then uh, Thursday, David McLaughlin, founder and CEO of Quantiverse, joined me to discuss the increasing automation to enhance compliance during this time. The uh, On 31 Days to so a More Effective Compliance Program, Jay, this month, we're looking at internal reporting and investigation. On Monday, I looked at the investigative team. Tuesday, investigative challenges. Uh, Wednesday, I focused on the witness interview. Thursday, issues in cross-border investigations. And on Friday, The always tricky question of whom and when to suspend uh, an employee. 31 Days to a More Effective Compliance Program has its own iTunes channel, or as the in-crowd would say, an Apple podcast, uh, as I learned today. Um, So, um, and if I could give a shout out, Jay, to my own blog post series this week, I had a um, series running every day, which was uh, Compliance Through the Hundred Acre Woods, which, of course, is the home of Winnie the Pooh and his characters, his, his friends, who are characters in the A.A. Milne books and the Disney pictures. I had a lot of fun doing it, and frankly, I was stunned at the response. I had well over 1,000 downloads of the, each blog each day. So Monday, I started out with Tigger. And uh, sales and how that impacts compliance. Tuesday, I looked at Kanga and Roo and the ombudsman and how you might use an ombudsman to enhance your compliance program. Three EOR and corporate legal. Not to say that every lawyer is as grumpy as EOR, but it seemed to be a uh, pretty good analogy. On Thursday, I looked at Piglet and the role of finance in compliance programs. And on Friday, I took a look at Winnie the Pooh through the eyes of the CECO. We often talk about the CCO, the Chief Compliance Officer, but in the phrase Chief Compliance and Ethics Officer, uh, uh, or rather Chief Ethics and Compliance Officer, is not as prevalent anymore. And what I did, Jay, is I went back and looked at the U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, and they talked about a CECO, and they talked about ethics and compliance. And that's something that, seems to have been uh, the phrase is dropped to compliance, so I thought it was good to remind people to think, 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 uh, as Pooh Bear would say about the ethics in ethics and compliance.
0: So I think the only thing you need to do is uh, change that acronym, and I think it should be a CECP, uh, compliance and ethics, uh, Com- chief ethics and compliance, Pooh. So that would be CECP, but I want to let you know, uh, everyone in the Rose household, we might be responsible for some of those multiple downloads and shares. But it's uh, it's it's inspiring. I know you and I like to do things with movies and video series, and it really shows that you can find ethics and compliance lessons anywhere to be learned. But the ones that really, the ones that really. Um, Get people are the ones that are based on certain stories and characters they love, whether it's Star Wars or the Marvel Karmic Universe. So kudos to you for finding another way to get the ethics and compliance message out. So on behalf of Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA episode 210, for the week ending June 19th, 2020, the Bostock edition. As we always close, we hope that you will continue to remain safe and healthy. Uh, Have a good weekend, and we will talk to you next week on This Week in FCPA.
1: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can email Jay at Jay Rosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can email me, Tom Fox, at tfox at com. We've also got a new really cool app on the Compliance Podcast Network website where you can leave a voicemail or a message. If you'd like to ask us a question or have a topic you would like us to consider. I hope you'll join us again next week when Jay and I look at some of the top compliance and ethics stories for the week that is to become. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening, and we look forward to visiting with you again.